Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. It's New Year's Eve 2010, and John has just been to her first protest. It ended with a swarm of police around her dad. I called my father. He was in the police car. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, what has just happened? My father said, well, I got arrested, and I think I will spend a new year in a prison cell. Boris Nemtsov, the former deputy prime minister, spending New Year's Eve on the floor of a freezing jail. It was something very new, because my father was one of the most recognized politicians in Russia. He was in the government. He held senior positions. Everyone in Russia knew this guy. He was kind of a celebrity. Now he was arrested, charged with disobeying the police, and sentenced to two weeks in prison. It was an act of humiliation, I think so. So the whole idea behind this arrest was to humiliate my father, to show to him personally, but also to many other people who were not such high-profile politicians or activists. Guys, if you want to go against uh, the ruling regime, you can be thrown in jail at any point of time, and nothing can protect you. So if it can happen to Boris Nemtsov, it can happen to anybody? Yes, absolutely. From Crooked Media, I'm Ben Rhodes. I'm Zhanna Nemtsova. And this is Another Russia. Episode 4, March of the Millions. New Year's Eve 2010 would be the first of many arrests for Boris Nemtsov. And it was for something pretty absurd. Appearing at a small protest, maybe a few hundred people. But over the next couple of years, Boris would build something much bigger. He would help grow a movement from a small ripple into a tidal wave, culminating in the biggest protest since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a public outpouring on a scale that's not been seen in Russia for two decades. How did that happen? To answer that question, you have to understand what happened in Russia between 2008 and 2012. You see, back in 08, Putin had a problem. The Russian constitution only allowed a president to serve two terms in a row. So Putin came up with a game plan. He handed over the Kremlin to his loyal aide, Dmitry Medvedev, a man with a tidy haircut and designer suits. Striding into the opulence of the Grand Kremlin Palace, Dmitry Medvedev followed an age-old ritual reborn under Vladimir Putin. While Medvedev took over the presidency, Putin would wait out those four years as prime minister. Once that term was up, Putin would be eligible to run for president again. In other words, they could swap jobs. 
So by the time I followed Obama into the White House in 2009, Medvedev was president. And he seemed different. While Putin appeared to retreat into the background, Medvedev put himself forward as a reformer. I pledge to the people of Russia to protect and respect the human rights and freedoms. You know, he was like a guy who wanted to represent modernity. He wanted to shake hands with Steve Jobs. And um, this is that white iPhone, so we're going to call. He wanted to be perceived as a modern leader. He used his smartphone. He took pictures. Go ahead and turn it uh, sideways. Yes, it's great. It's pretty great. I remember when he came to the United States, he spoke off an iPad in Silicon Valley wearing, like, jeans, and then he came to the White House, and he and Obama went out for, like, hamburgers. Well, before he left for the G20 summit, President Obama tried out some burger diplomacy with Russia's president. It was a little weird because he ate the hamburger without a bun with his hands. Mr. Obama and the Russian president both had cheeseburgers, and they shared the fries. That was nice of them. And Mr. Obama paid. The hamburgers? That was actually my idea, a casual lunch out. We were trying to get stuff done with Medvedev. After he came to office, Obama had called it a reset. We resolved to reset U.S.-Russian relations so that we can cooperate more effectively in areas of common interest. And for a while, it seemed like it was working. Medvedev let us supply our troops in Afghanistan through Russia. He supported sanctions on Iran. He negotiated a nuclear arms control treaty with Obama. He even talked about liberalizing the Russian economy. So on the surface, Medvedev was a guy with his iPhone shaking hands with Steve Jobs and wanted to be regarded as a progressive, which was not the whole truth because of what was going on inside the country. As Jana says, inside Russia, not much was changing, especially when it came to human rights. In Chechnya, several activists were murdered. Journalists faced intimidation. And then, on New Year's Eve 2010, Boris Nemtsov was arrested and sentenced. After a few days, Jana went to see him. He was in a low-security prison for petty crime. Those minor criminals sitting with him in this prison cell, and he made them do their morning exercise. (laughs) 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 And he tried to tell them more about the current political situation in Russia. So he basically tried (laughs) to educate those guys. When her father was released in January 2011, Jana took him to a cafe to celebrate but it quickly became clear that life was not going to return to normal. When we got out of this cafe, one guy wearing black jacket, black trousers, tried to attack my father in a very strange way. He wanted to catch my father in a very big butterfly net. What? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. A butterfly net. I understand that you cannot imagine that. But at the time, some young people who were the members of different pro-Putin youth organizations, they organized different creative attacks on the leaders of the Russian opposition. 
The Kremlin was building its base, especially among disaffected young people. The biggest group was called Nashi, and they were famous for attention-grabbing ambushes. It was becoming clear that the stakes of being in opposition had just got a lot higher. How did you feel like you've seen your father get sent to prison? You're walking with him. There, There's someone trying to catch him on a butterfly net. Did you just feel like you wanted to tell him to stop being in politics? Or did you feel scared for his future? Did you ever just feel like, man, I wish my dad was just kind of a, a normal guy who wasn't doing this? Back then, I understood clearly my father would never give up on politics. He regarded it as his mission to confront the Putin regime. And he has said it crystal clearly. Vladimir Putin is rebuilding an autocracy and Russia does not need it. Russia needs to be a democracy. Boris Nemtsov understood maybe more than anyone else that just because Putin wasn't president anymore did not mean he had given up power. So my father came up with a strategy to challenge Vladimir Putin and his regime. So he uh, wanted to expose grand corruption of the Putin elites. Boris was targeting Putin, not Medvedev, because he understood that it was still Putin holding the reins. This is a special operation, how Putin can keep power in Kremlin. We heard last episode how Putin made short work of the oligarchs in the 1990s. In their place, he elevated his cronies, friends and former KGB guys. The big state oil company? That was handed over to Igor Sechin, an old colleague. So Nemtsov thinks, if I can just show people the scale of corruption, maybe I could get them to care about politics. Care enough to join the opposition. But how's he going to do that? It's not like he has a bunch of people working for him. He's got one assistant and a few volunteers. And so this group starts doing their own investigations into how Putin's cronies got fleets of luxury yachts or the palaces at Putin's disposal. And then Nemtsov actually travels around the country, publicizing what they found through pamphlets that he hands out himself in any public place he could find, at railway stations, on squares, outside shops, the most basic kind of democratic politics. On the streets, people recognized him. Even uh, in some cases, he told me, even some policemen could come up and could ask him, Boris Yefimovich, yeah. <laughs> I would like to have one copy. Think of it. The image of a former deputy prime minister handing out pamphlets at train stations. This is someone who believed in democracy. But it wasn't resonating. Not in a country where even young liberals were pretty much okay with life under their new president, Medvedev. For me and very many people around me, those four Medvedev years were a genuine illusion. A genuine illusion. That's Leonid Volkov. For the last several years, he's been chief of staff to Alexei Navalny, currently Russia's leading opposition figure, who's been poisoned and jailed. We'll come back to Navalny later. At the time, in 2011, Leonid was working on the council of a big Russian city. Medvedev was nearly done with his presidential term. And Leonid 
was already making plans for Medvedev's second term. We really thought, okay, so the first one was a warm-up, but then the second will come and the country will really open up for like liberal reforms and all types of, you know, civic participation. It's not that Leonid loved Medvedev, but he did like some of the stuff Medvedev had to say about reform, the closer ties with the West. And that image of modernity, the iPad, the more media-friendly attitude, it made things feel different. So people like Leonid held out hope. But then, on September 24th, 2011, everything changed. Leonid was attending a fancy pro-democracy conference in Moscow. It was like really a huge house, very posh with chandeliers and so on. It used to be an embassy or something like this before. And it was full of liberal politicians, some people actually working for Medvedev, preparing for a second term, lawyers, technocrats. Halfway through the conference, they learned that Putin and Medvedev were going to do a public event. There was a big plasma screen in the lobby of this house. All of us, like 50 or 70 people, maybe gathered in this lobby in front of these TV screens to watch the announcement of Medvedev's second presidential candidacy. But that's not what happened. Russian President Dmitry Medvedev has proposed his prime minister and former head of state Vladimir Putin as a candidate for the country's 2012 election. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Putin and Medvedev announced they decided to change their seats. Putin was coming back. Medvedev would revert to being prime minister. And Putin was going to be president again. Medvedev even said this had been the plan all along. Leonid looked around the room. I could see how their faces became, like, really pale. I literally saw how all these guys, like, close to Medvedev, his think tankers, his advisors, like, literally lost their faces watching this. They were caught by surprise. They didn't expect this to happen. And it looked like their worst nightmare came true. So everyone couldn't actually really believe. And very many people were upset. The move could mean a continuation of strongman rule, especially considering that victory would open the door to Putin's ruling Russia for two more terms, or 12 years. He already held the office from 2000 to 2008. People felt conned. They were in despair. They'd bought into the facade of a more liberal Russian president. And it had all come crashing down. And Nemtsov realized... This announcement was his chance, his moment to build the opposition. He wanted to form a broader alliance with all people who were critical about Putin's regime and who wanted to change Russia. He said, you know, my role as the member of the Russian opposition is that I'm a very experienced person. I held senior positions in the government. I know a lot about politics, and I can help younger politicians to grow into 
good leaders. It was not about his personal ambition to become Russia's next president. It was about his ambition to bring democracy to Russia, to bring Russia on track. As one slogan said, a Russia without Putin. But how was Boris Nemtsov going to build that Russia? He couldn't do it on his own. And so he decided to team up with someone who today everyone has heard of. A handsome 41-year-old lawyer. The charismatic orator. Kremlin critic, jailed opposition leader. Anti-corruption crusader. Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny. Together, they would create the biggest protest movement the Putin era had ever seen. For many Russians, the announcement that Putin was returning to the Kremlin was a shock to the system. The middle classes had become politically disengaged. The opposition was weak and fragmented. And now, the whole system felt more rigged than ever. The TV channels spouted propaganda. Traditional media was largely a tool of the state. So where could a Russian turn for political dialogue and dissent? Where could you build a movement of people who supported change? The Russian intranet was very independent. Kremlin didn't pay attention to what's going on the intranet. They consider it to be like a sandbox for children. That's Leonid Volkov again. After his day job on the city council, he went casting around in the sandbox. I was blogging on a platform called Live Journal, now forgotten, but it was the main opposition platform, main independent platform in Russia by that point of time. And one person in particular had Leonid's attention, Alexei Navalny. Then a young lawyer in jeans and a white shirt with rolled up sleeves. And Alexei Navalny was blogging about corruption. Like Nemtsov. Except Navalny was younger and understood the internet was a far more effective way to get a message out than printed pamphlets. He started to blog on corruption as early as 2008, and his anti-corruption investigations and anti-corruption agenda has really attracted a lot of attention already by 2009 or 2010. So he became prominent in this very small circle of Russian political internet users, of live journal users. So I had maybe 10,000 followers, and it was a lot. And he had maybe 50,000, and it was huge. Navalny was born into a military family, just outside of Moscow. He wasn't a classic liberal like Nemtsov. He had a streak of nationalism, a sense of some of the post-Soviet humiliation that Putin also tapped into. And he was ready to make his move. He was not yet a leader of a large political organization, but it was very clear that he's ambitious and he knows what he does. Leonid was impressed. So he invited Navalny to his city to meet local politicians, anti-corruption lawyers, do interviews. And the schedule was really exhausting, but I saw how he derived energy from those meetings, how every next meeting, every next possibility 
to talk to people, to connect to people, to share his ideas, gave him energy rather than took energy from him. And Boris Nemtsov was also impressed. My father publicly acknowledged that Navalny was a rising political star. He saw him as a leader for the next generation, someone who knew how to use the internet to inform and to organize. And soon something happened that pushed Navalny into the spotlight. In December 2011, after Putin and Medvedev announced they would be swapping jobs, parliamentary elections were held in Russia. On December 4th, an enormous act of election fraud happened. Ballots were stuffed. Independent observers who tried to object were removed from the polling stations, often by police force. But many of those election observers took videos on their cell phones. Reports of alleged vote rigging first came to light after this footage was circulated on the internet. The reporter seen in the red jacket appears to show ballot papers found in a toilet of a polling station marked in favor of Mr. Putin's party and pens in polling booths that can erase ink if a vote needs to be changed. People like Navalny shared them on the internet. And on social media, they spread like wildfire. People watched as their votes were stolen. And that sparked massive protests on scene since the collapse of the USSR. Tens of thousands voiced their anger over alleged election fraud last weekend, which saw Mr. Putin's party win almost 50% of the vote, setting the stage for his probable return to the presidency next year. And in Russia, too, the protesters were armed with the modern equivalent of the pitchfork and the Molotov cocktail, cell phones. Nemtsov gave a speech. So did Navalny. They demanded fair elections. The next week, an estimated 50,000 people gathered in Moscow. Two weeks later, it was up to 120,000. It felt big. Nemtsov and Navalny realized they complemented each other. Navalny was internet savvy, with a younger following, a rising star. Nemtsov had been organizing the old way, in the streets, for years. He knew a lot of people. Together, they could create something powerful. So they started to hold training sessions at local cafes and people's apartments. How to protest. When to protest. They were building momentum. So many new people joined the movement. So many new people came. Including people who had done pretty well in the Putin era. There were people who had previously been loyal to Putin, but they also wanted change. So lots of people who were pretty well off, who were recognizable, took to the streets. So many people like found themselves humiliated by this voter fraud and decided they have to do something, they have to express themselves. And those people found each other. It was really like a new starting point. 
Nemtsov and Navalny wanted to go even bigger. Putin's inauguration date for a third term was announced, May 7, 2012. Vladimir Putin tonight declared victory in Russia's presidential elections, the third time the former KGB man has held the Kremlin's top job. And they had an idea. A protest so brazen that the Kremlin would have to pay attention. Right on the eve of Putin's inauguration. So what happens on, on May 6? I was in Moscow. I got a call from my father. My father wanted me to join this protest. He realized it would be really big. Initially, I wanted to join him, but I felt sick and I had a fever. And I called him back and said, you know, I think I cannot join you today because uh, I'm not feeling really well. So I spent the whole day in my bed. But one person that Jana now knows really well did go. Well, yes. <laughs> my husband, his name is Pavel Yelizarov. Uh, I'm from Russia. I'm a web designer and uh, developer, also a political activist. And more recently, I'm a proud husband of Jana. Pavel is a soft-spoken guy, not someone you'd expect to be fighting the regime in the streets. But he'd been working with the opposition for years. On May 6, he woke up in his apartment in a suburb of Moscow. And it was sunny, and it was spring, so I was feeling good. He took the subway to the city center. People were smiling, and it was like kind of familiar event with uh, kids. There was new hope. I don't know why. Maybe because of the weather. And there was a feeling that in, on this day, something may go different. But what exactly will happen, nobody knew. So in this good mood, we went for an hour, marching, and shouting, Putin, go away. Stop Putin. Putin, enough Putin. Tens of thousands of people came out to march that day. It may not seem like a huge amount, but it was unprecedented, so much so that it became known as the March of the Millions. And the final destination was Bolotnaya Square. Bolotnaya Square is in central Moscow, across the river from the Kremlin. As Pavel approached the square, he saw police everywhere. Huge police lines blocking the streets around the square. The police were trying to stop the protesters from getting in but people were pushing right in front of the police line. Amidst the chaos, Navalny started a sit-in. He sat down at the entrance to the square, and he said that everybody should follow and should sit down as well. And the police started to arrest these people. Navalny was immediately arrested, but Nemtsov managed to push through. He managed to access the square, and he climbed the stage, and he said in megaphone for everybody what's going on. That police is blocking the access, that some people got arrested, and, but that they should continue to protest, to stay on the square. And uh, immediately he got arrested himself, right during this speech. With megaphone in his hand, which was quite spectacular. The crowd started getting angrier and angrier. 
screaming at the police, pushing. And the, the police got angry themselves. And they start to beat people, not only to arrest, but also to beat people. More and more police started arriving. And eventually, they managed to block off the square completely. So the protesters started to peel off and go home. And I was just going home when I got arrested myself. Of course, they didn't explain the reason. They just took me and it was a lot of force. And very violently, they just took me. The police beat Pavel, threw him in jail, and released him later that night. The next morning, May 7th, was Putin's inauguration. In executing the office of President of the Russian Federation, I solemnly swear to respect and protect the rights and liberties of men and of the citizen. And in the morning, when the operation happened, the city was empty. There was no crowd like celebrating or trying to congratulate Putin with his inauguration. And the images were quite powerful with his motorcade, with his car, going across the Moscow and empty city. And he knew that city in this moment hates him. And it was really impressive. The fallout from the Bolotnia Square protest was significant. 400 demonstrators were detained and fined. 28 people were charged with violence towards the police. Some got two to four year prison sentences. Putin himself was angry. Some people say that his reaction was, okay, they ruined my celebration, so I will ruin their lives. Uh, and he managed it. Pavel's own life too. He received a summons to come to court. He knew he had to get out of Russia. And he hasn't been back since. Of course, the Bolotnaya case that followed was another major turn point in the transformation of the Russian regime into an autocracy. People realized, specifically people who were not professional activists and politicians, realized how dangerous it was to oppose Putin and his regime. And probably they realized that Putin regime would not crumble that easily. As for Nemtsov, he spent the following months trying to help all those people whose lives had been upended by the crackdown. I think that he did not expect that to be that brutal. He did not expect that people who were detained at the protest in Bolotnaya Square would be thrown in prison. Over the next couple of years, Putin would continue to crush dissent at home. And soon his attention turned outward towards establishing his power in a different country, Ukraine. But Nemtsov didn't back down. Instead, he decided to make what became his final play, to go it alone and oppose the war. No holds barred. Personally calling Putin out. We 
Another Russia is an original podcast from Crooked Media. It is produced by Samizdat Audio. I'm Ben Rhodes, your co-host, writer, and executive producer. And I'm Jana Nemtsova, your co-host and executive producer. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Katie Long, with special thanks to Allison Falzetta. From Samizdat, our executive producers are Dasha Lizitsina and Joe Sykes. Asya Fuchs is our producer. All three also helped with writing on the series. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Archival by Molly Schwartz. The series was sound designed by Jeff Entman. And Martin Orstwick composed our theme music and score. If you want to learn more about the stories of Russians who are standing up to autocracy and how you can help support their work, check out nimtsofund.org slash Russians for Change. We will also put a link in our show notes.